Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on this show, a remarkable new documentary about Ronnie the Rocket O'Sullivan called Ronnie O'Sullivan, The Edge of Everything, about the mercurial and wildly talented snooker player. That lands on Prime Video this week. I talk to its director, Sam Blair. Steve Wall of The Stunning, and of course a fine actor too, talks to me about his role in the short movie Two for the Road, which is picking up awards to be the band. Plus, we review Ridley Scott's Napoleon and Disney's animation spectacular Wish. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. I hope you're doing well. I was at Christy Moore last weekend, uh, up near me where I live in Louth. Fantastic gig. One man and a guitar banging out the tunes. Plenty of hits. Even took a request at one point. Few people having full-blown conversations in the audience. But anyway, seems to be the modern way. But a fantastic gig, I have to say. And I probably owe a slight apology to a security man person who was there because the bar closed about 15-20 minutes before the gig started, which is the prerogative of Christy Moore to insist on this, and perhaps it makes for a better gig. But I was literally walking in as it was closing and he said, no, no, no. And I told him it was my birthday and he slipped me in. Now, the truth is it wasn't my birthday. That's in July, in case you're wondering. But uh, it was a present for my birthday. So there was a half-truth, you know. A noble lie, as Plato might say. A bit of Greek philosophy there for you as well. But Christy Moore was epic. And it was nice to have a beer, which I wasn't meant to have, at the gig. Now, this week in TV, I was watching this. Attention, players. You will now compete for our biggest cash prize in reality show history. You have got to be kidding me. Oh my God. $4.56 million. People do a whole lot worse for a whole lot less. Yes, my friends, that is Squid Game The Challenge. Now, in case you've been living under a rock and you have never heard of it, Squid Game is Netflix's most, it was their most successful show, if I'm not mistaken, watched by millions of people uh, set in South Korea, all about a gang of people, 450, who are all suffering serious financial hardships and they're persuaded to compete in a series of games for a huge cash prize. The slight drawback is losing contestants are killed. So this was obviously fiction. And this has been muted for a while. There is now the reality TV show Squid Game, The Challenge. My wife actually asked me before we watched this, are they actually going to kill the people? I assumed and assured her they weren't going to. And indeed they don't because this is 456 people again, but real people, reality TV people, you would say, ordinary people who are put into a very similar space, it seems, and they carry out these challenges, uh, which are kind of unusual games. And there are some surprise games and some surprise tasks and little alliances form between these contestants. And it is 
the worst of reality TV that you would expect, but it is incredibly gripping. Uh, there's an Irish guy in it. They're, they're mostly Americans and English people. As I say, alliances are formed. The games are, a lot of them are just the exact same ones you saw in the TV show. If you watch it, remember there's one where they had to cut out shapes in kind of cookie dough. Uh, there was one where they had to get to a line in the sand before the statue of a woman turned back around. All those games were in it, but it's real life or as real as you can get in reality TV. And I watched four of them over two nights. It is a great watch. Now, I'm sure it's been edited within an inch of its life, but it's great. And it has lots of earnest Americans talking about how much it means to them when the camera cuts away and all that kind of nonsense. But it is, again, I say, wildly, wildly entertaining. So Squid Game, the challenge, not the real show Squid Game, Squid Game, the challenge landed on Netflix on Wednesday of this week. And by golly, it's entertaining. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not going to morally make you a better person watching it, I don't think. It's not like eating a, you know, fine meal. It's like gorging on cheese nachos or something. But by golly, they t it tastes good at the time. Squid Game, the challenge, now streaming on Netflix. Do get in touch if you might have watched that or indeed anything else at all. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle and you can email screentime at newstalk.com. Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. We turn to the week's new movie releases and there are two big ones this week. Napoleon, the latest, possibly the last, well, no, it's it's not the last, could be the second last, Ridley Scott blockbuster and the new Disney animated movie possibly set to rival Frozen, we will see, called Wish. Delighted to be joined now by Brian Lloyd of entertainment.ie. Brian, hello, how are you? Good, how are you? Not too bad. So listen, Ridley Scott does Napoleon. Mm. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, what What is this? Is it Napoleon's life and times or is it a series of battles or a it's, mix of both? It's sort of a mix of both. And to be honest, I think that's almost in a way kind of its undoing. Because like, I mean, as I understand it, there are two ways you can approach a biopic. One is, is that you have the sort of Gandhi thing, which is literally it's three and a half hour, four hours long. It covers every single aspect of their lives or they'll focus in on one specific point in that famous person's life. And for that, you could look at something like, I don't know, Lincoln, you know, the Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. Um, yeah. This tries to do a bit of both, but what it does is it essentially weaves together uh, Napoleon's kind of military victories with uh, his very tumultuous relationship with his first wife, Josephine, who's played by Vanessa Kirby. And it kind of ties together the fact that, you know, he was this you know, ravishing, ambitious man and all the rest of it. And they're really trying to kind of make it all a bit more kind of saucy. It's not like, it wouldn't be like Barry Lyndon or, you know, The Duelists, which was actually Ridley Scott's first film. Um, it's a bit more trying to be a bit kind of saucy and a bit kind of a bit uh, racy, I guess. But then like, you know, the battle sequences are done incredibly well. I mean, obviously anyone who saw Black Hawk Down, anybody who saw Gladiator knows that one of the things that later era Scott is able to do really well is, you know, draw together, you know, CGI and practical effects and editing and music. I mean, I was watching some of these in the IMAX here in uh, in Parnell Street in Dublin. And it was, what really struck me was, was that 
I it's been so long since I've actually seen a really well directed battle sequence because I'm so used to watching Marvel and DC and that's just feels like I'm watching pixels move around a screen. It they're all very cookie cutter. They all have a very distinctive uh I say sorry distinctive and indistinctive look to them whereas in this I mean you know like the battle of Austerlitz is one of the big sequences in this and it's kind of set over this frozen lake and you know, you can see that it's kind of, there's a real sort of viciousness to it. Like it's very bloody, it's very angry. And then, you know, towards the end of the film, you have Waterloo, obviously. Um, and Rupert Everett comes on screen. And Rupert Everett, you know, is a great comedic actor. And he almost kind of plays it. it I almost feel like there's a hint of Blackadder going on here. Like there's almost a hint of comedy to it. Because there's a line, there's a couple of lines from uh, Rupert Everett in it that are just he was putting so much relish on the delivery that I kind of feel like Ridley Scott came up to him and, and said to him there, like you're a star Wars villain. Like, like we want you to play this like a star Wars villain or something like that, because it's just so kind of pompous and rankling. If you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's very interesting. Like, and so the battle scenes are very effective. We should have mentioned Joaquin Phoenix plays the titular. Yeah, of course, yeah. Is is he good? Is he convincing? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, look, I always think, you know, Joaquin Phoenix, even if the film is, you know, a little bit weak or whatever, he's always worth the admission fee, you know, and he is in this. Like he plays Napoleon with just the perfect amount of, you know, petulance and confidence. Like there's a brilliant scene in it where he meets this, uh, British ambassador and he just he just throws this massive tantrum in front of the ambassador and he goes you know you wouldn't be so big if you didn't have your boats <laughs> and he just storms <laughs> off like a child like it's really really funny and it got a lot of laughs at the press screening as well uh, I'm reminded of that Woody Allen quote my first ex-wife was so immature she used to come in and drown my boats when I was in the bath but anyway so now, we get to Vanessa Kirby, who plays mm. Josephine, and this is one of the great, you know, troubled love affair of all time, love affairs mm. of all time, Napoleon and Josephine. I gather, and you mentioned to it there, like the sex is is complicated and weird at times. Mm. They're, not, they're not gelling in the bedroom. Is that stuff effective? I mean, it is. I mean, again, this is another interesting point about Nap the film Napoleon is, is that it's actually quite funny in parts. You know, that's what right. I mean. Like some of the sex scenes are actually kind of played off for a laugh. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do think it, it felt to me like they were both Vanessa Kirby and Joaquin Phoenix were acting in two completely different films. Now, that may have been the point to kind of talk <coughs> about the tumult and, and, you know, the kind of the differences between them. But Vanessa Kirby felt like she was in this very sort of austere period drama, not unlike, I don't know, The Crown or any of the stuff she's done before, whereas Wacking Phoenix was in this big blockbuster film and was, you know, roaring it out to make sure he was getting the people in the rafters. So there's a level of subtlety and then there's a level of, I don't know what the opposite <laughs> of subtlety is, but, you know, like bombast, I guess, that yeah. uh, the two actors were playing and it didn't kind of gel together too well, I don't think. Okay, okay. Well, that sounds like a very interesting mix. A few misfires, maybe. So yeah. what would you say, stars-wise, for Napoleon? I mean, three out of five for me. I mean, I saw Peter Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian gave it five stars. I don't know what film he was watching or what print he <laughs> saw, because 
it's not a five star film at all. It's a very well made film. It's a great film for I would say seventy percent of the time, and then thirty percent of the time, you know, it 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 definitely does kind of falter a bit. Okay, so three out of five for Napoleon, which is launching on Wednesday of this week, the 22nd of November. I'm not sure why they were releasing it on a Wednesday. Maybe that was Ridley Scott's uh, book. Interestingly, you might have heard this point, but I thought it was very funny. Mm. You know, it's, it's been getting good reviews, mixed reviews, but it's gotten bad reviews in France. And apparently Ridley Scott said, oh, don't pay any attention to the French. They don't even like themselves, <laughs> which I thought was a very Ridley Scott way of doing it. I interviewed him two years ago for the... The last duel yeah and he, he made a lot of it in ireland and i said to him what was the reason and he said oh mostly the tax uh, he's a very funny guy he I, is I, I have always wanted i was meant to interview him for this and then my time got caught with him and i tell you i am absolutely raging i have wanted to interview him for like blade runner is the closest thing i've ever had to a religious experience so <laughs> i mean i'm absolutely obsessed with and yeah he's brilliant i saw him make a comment as well about um historians were kind of ripping ripping Napoleon. And I won't repeat the quote, obviously, because it's not fit for air, but look it up. His, yeah. uh, Ridley Scott's quote on historians about Napoleon. It's terrific. Yes, indeed. Well, listen, let's take a quick clip of Napoleon. I found the crown of France in the gutter. I picked it up with the tip of my sword and cleaned it and placed it atop my own head. The most glorious, the most august Napoleon, Emperor of the French, is crowned and enthroned. Long live the Emperor! Long live the Emperor! That was Napoleon there, which, as I say, is in cinemas from November the 22nd. Brian Lloyd of entertainment.ie gave it three stars. So, Brian, another big movie event, in a way, uh, to equal Napoleon in a different sense of it, mm. is Wish, Disney's new, I guess, well, it's not a Christmas movie, but it's it's being released in times for Christmas. What What's going on here? This is an animated movie. Yeah, so this is an animated fantasy. A young girl called Asha lives in this island called Roses. It's protected by this sorcerer king called Magnifico uh, who is voiced by Chris Pine um, but the catch is, is that every person once they pass the age of 18 has to give Magnifico their heart's wish that he will then protect and use to keep the people of uh, Roses safe and once a year he's able to grant different people on the island their heart's wish um, he's looking for a new apprentice. Asha is one of the candidates for it. When she goes to meet him in his magical tower, she then realizes that actually maybe people should be holding on to their wishes because, you know, she realizes that that he's not going to grant everyone's wish eventually. Like her father, for example, is a hundred years old and still doesn't have his wish yet, but he's still he's still holding on hope for it. So she then believes that everyone should have their wish returned to them. And then they get into this big fantasy battle with lots of singing and lots of dancing in the middle of it. Okay, so is this like it's it's by the same guy who made Frozen and Frozen mm. 2, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So is, is this where there's Disney are situating this in a way that this is going to be their next big thing with lots mm. of music and a young girl attempting to find her way in the world? Exactly that, yeah. I mean, it's very much kind of... And I say I, I say this, and I don't mean this as a negative thing, but like I mean, it's a very well crafted piece of product. Do you know that sort of way? It's like we need okay. another Frozen. We're not going to do a, a a threequel, so 
we're going to come up with something new. And I mean, to be fair, like, I mean, there are some interesting aspects of it. I mean, it's set in the Mediterranean Sea. The architecture does have that sort of um, Moorish kind of uh, quality to it. Also, as well, the background of it has a sort of a watercolour kind of quality. And it is. I mean, you can tell that they're trying to evoke, you know, the likes of Peter Pan and all the rest of it. Like, I mean, he even actually makes a little cameo and stuff like that. So, I mean, it has its qualities. It's just... As I was watching it, I was very much aware of the fact that I've seen this before. This is all very well done, but I've seen this before. But I guess, you know, look, I'm not the intended, like a 38-year-old man with no children is not the intended audience. I mean, I saw this on the Sunday uh, family screening that Disney often do. Kids seem to love it. They were clapping and cheering at the end of it. So I think with kids, it's going to be a big hit. But I think for adults, it's maybe, you know, a 90 minutes sleep if you can manage okay. it well i can interject here and you've probably already answered the question but i have an eight-year-old daughter and I, this is an oversharing because i think a lot of kids were like this but about two years ago she would literally watch parts if not all of frozen most weekdays when yeah. she got home from school i mean she was obsessed so if you are not an adult and you're not feeling like you're being flogged the next thing from Disney. It's going to work for an eight-year-old girl on that level then. Oh, 100%. In fact, I'm surprised actually you didn't bring her to that, to that Sunday screen. Yeah, let's let's not get into that. <laughs> now, <laughs> no, but I mean, yeah, no, it's, it's definitely like, I mean, they are very much setting this up to be the next Frozen. And it will. I mean, I, I, I think it will. Like, I mean, the songs are great, I have to say. I mean, again, yeah. I'm not much of a musical guy, but I mean, I enjoy them. I mean, I think Chris Pine has a great voice. Um, Ariana DeBose, who plays Asha, I mean, you know, she's a great singer as well. She's, yeah. I think she's been nominated for like Tony Awards and stuff like that. Like, so she's got the voice and everything. It's enjoyable. It is enjoyable. I mean, it's that thing of, I always find it with a lot of Disney, Disney films is that I'm very much being given something that has been crafted and hewn and cut exactly to deliver exactly yeah. the response that people want. You know, that sort of way. I don't necessarily feel a lot of artistry. It's more sure. craft, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and then just finally on it, I mean, you know this as well as I do, but often the best kids' movies have a lot going on for adults as well, be it mm. Toy Story or, you know, The Mitchells versus The Machines a couple of years ago. Yeah, I'm sensing this doesn't really have a lot of adult laughs in it that are slipped in. Not really, no. And, like, to be fair, that's okay, to be honest. Like, yeah. I mean, that, that really doesn't bother me because I do think sometimes – you know, writers and directors will trip over themselves to get a couple of jokes in for the adults. And it kind of, yeah. it, it takes up time. Whereas this, like you're talking 95 minutes. So like, you know, in order for an adults to get a joke in there to enjoy or something like that, it's just going to add more weight to it, more ballast. Yeah. So better to just kind of keep it lean and keep it moving, you know? Yeah. Well, look, it's clearly one for the kids. So what are you going to say stars wise for Wish, which is in cinemas from this Friday, I should say, which is the 24th of November. Uh, I'll say three out of five. I mean, it's it's good. Yeah, okay. Well, that is a week of three stars for two big movies, Wish and also Napoleon. I've been talking to Brian Lloyd of entertainment.ie. Brian, thanks a million. Thanks a bunch. Brian Lloyd there of entertainment.ie giving us his take on the week's new movie releases. Up next, Sam Blair, the director of a fantastic new Ronnie O'Sullivan documentary. Yeah, you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. I'm John Fardy. Take a listen to this. People listen to the chaos in my life and then they can't work out how I can go and play snooker. They're kind of just baffled by it. 
And I go, but yeah, but that's the only time that I, I really truly do get peace. <laughs> I said, that's when I'm like, no one can get to me. No one can ask me anything. And I just think, you know what, I'm safe here. Now, I think that's the pretty unmistakable voice of Ronnie O'Sullivan. And that was a clip from a new Amazon Prime or Prime Video, as we're meant to refer to it these days, that lands this week on Prime Video. Ronnie O'Sullivan made the decision to allow total access to his life for the first time at a moment in his career when he was beginning to consider a world beyond snooker. And he opens the doors to his personal life and a remarkable cast of characters for the first time. He's facing the end of a wildly successful but wildly turbulent career and he's decided to let these cameras in and they're going to follow him in the run-up to 2022's World Championship. And as I say, the axe, and that's when he's going for his seventh win of the World Championship and the access that the filmmaker Sam Blair gets is incredible. He's mic'd up. He's We go through his life growing up. He had a pretty strange life. His father went to prison. As you may know, he had this incredible talent and it's it's a genius talent for snooker that was very apparent from an early age but he is mercurial and has walked out of tournaments and has struggled with mental health and addiction and this documentary he really lays it all bare and there has been you know an argument that a recent slew of documentaries have been kind of puff pieces for the stars in question being Arnold Schwarzenegger or David Beckham even though I think a lot of those documentaries have been very entertaining I can see the argument that they are puff pieces. This one is not, I don't think. It, it does show Ronnie at his snooker best, but it also really shows him at his worst as well. Ronnie O'Sullivan, The Edge of Everything, is a remarkable documentary, and I spoke to its director, Sam Blair. So Sam, is there a risk when you start this that, you know, Ronnie agrees that you're going to follow him in the run-up to The Crucible, but, you know, that could have gone anyway. Now, a quick, a quick Google or any sports fan will know that he did very well. He did the best he possibly could. But when you started out, did you have any, you know, trepidation about where is this going to end up? What if he goes out in the first round? Oh, we we didn't even know if he would play in the World Championships at the start. You know, the advice we were given was that you, you can't predict anything with Ronnie. You know, he may quit the sport tomorrow. Was was the general advice we were given and so you know whatever happened you know Ronnie was committed to the to the filming and he was uh, you know I think as you see in the film just phenomenally open throughout but there was certainly no guarantees about where it was going to end up and at the start of the filming he was very much keeping the sport at arm's length and happily playing with in a kind of carefree way and the film portrays his the way that moves from that ambivalence into kind of being committed at the world championships um and everything that everything that entails and tell me this there's some remarkable footage uh from his past and, and audio of his parents and and i know a bit about him but I, i'd never heard that before i presume did ronnie come to you and say i, I have all this stuff you can use well, his his mum is a you know Ronnie's a gift as a subject, and that extended to his parents. You know, his mum kept all this material from his childhood, and so we had yeah tapes and videos and um, albums and 
cuttings and it was all there kind of for us for us to use and that's certainly not always the case so it added to this sense of access to Ronnie really you know access is a big word in making documentaries I've never experienced access like this you know and it extended from him and the way he would let us into his most you know the most private spaces at the most tense pressurized times into yeah access to his his family history Mm. you get incredible access and it's funny two weeks ago I was talking not to mix documentaries but I was talking to the director of the new Robbie Williams documentary and there were some similarities but one thing was that Robbie did lots of it from his bed and also Ronnie does plenty of this lying in bed. And I know that's a strange kind of parallel to make, but but I'm just wondering, was, was that unusual that, you know, here you are filming, you know, one of the greatest sports people ever, lying in his cot, as we say in Ireland? Yeah, it's, it's yeah, I've, I haven't seen the Robbie Williams um, film, but I'm aware, I've heard the word bed used, which, yeah, I, <laughs> I we, we, found ourselves in bed with Ronnie because the first the first time we filmed was in Londono in Wales and we switched the camera Ronnie was lying on the sofa and there's a scene in the film where he's lying on the sofa watching telly and that's the first thing we actually filmed with him and I really enjoyed this this interview you know it felt um very natural and and so when it came later I sort of had this idea well let's try doing one in bed and actually it turned out to be an extraordinary it was barely really an interview we we put a camera above Ronnie in bed and he I probably said a couple of things and it was really a kind of stream of consciousness that that came out um and it runs through the film it was done quite late on in the filming so by that point we'd been through so much together we like I said I barely needed to say a word and he just sort of gave us this incredible speech that yeah another example of just filming with Ronnie you never quite knew what was going to happen at any point in terms of his snooker playing what comes across in your film is that when he for whatever reason and it's very complicated least of all to him but when he's in the zone it seems like he can't lose that when he gets to a particular, Mm. you know, I think at one point he calls it a flow state that he's Mm. the best player that's ever played the game. It, it, and it strikes me as almost a tragedy in a way, and maybe that's overstating it, but he's sitting on this winning ticket and yet sometimes he hasn't got the keys to it. But I think, you know, I I would use the word, like lots of people use the word genius with Ronnie. And I think the thing you have mm. to, I feel that if I have any understanding of genius now, having spent time with him, is that you need both those things. And it's the edge that the film's title alludes to, that mm. genius isn't just a positive thing. It exists within the tension. I think Ronnie's a incredibly sensitive person and and I mean sensitive to kind of everything the kind of the physics of snooker um he's sort of able to to float above it at times but yeah getting getting himself into that space isn't easy and I think that's a that's probably one thing that I've learned from this is that 
I think we have this idea that genius is easy and it, it, in Ronnie's case, it isn't. I don't, I don't know if it can be because it's asked so much of him. He can't just sort of switch it on. Like, and, and, and the yeah. thing that, but I think the thing that's hard for Ronnie is that he, he's not in total control of when it happens. You know, it kind of yeah. appear, it appears and when it's there, it's the most beautiful thing for him in the world, you know, to yeah. be able to have total control over the balls on this table. And it's, it is an absolute miracle to watch it when it happens. It's, yeah. it's so magnetic. But there's, yeah, there's a flip side to that. And then the very last thing, and this is kind of a movie audio nerd thing, but I remember seeing him winning last year at the Crucible and he goes over to Judd Trump and it's it's very emotional. But you get the audio. I mean, was was that hard to get? Like, I didn't even know it had been recorded, but obviously it was. Well, we had a, a radio mic, which is a little concealed microphone on oh, Ronnie okay, right. throughout the whole thing. So you hear, you know, through the film you get to hear what it's like to be with him at the table really you hear him yeah talking to himself and you hear also just the the sound of the cue rubbing up against him as he's taking it's very intimate it really puts you inside ronnie's bubble it's very few sports people who would allow themselves to be mic'd up in yeah the the most pressurized game there is you know and and it was another example of the access that ronnie gave us and why the film hopefully can draw an audience in is that it's it's a completely new perspective on him and on the sport well look it's 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 wonderfully told and wonderfully put together and the access you got just makes it uh not like anything else really so uh, lovely to talk to you and, and and good luck with it thanks so much thank you Sam Blair, the director of Ronnie O'Sullivan, The Edge of Everything, talking about Ronnie O'Sullivan and his great new documentary, which is now on Prime Video. Up next, stunning frontman Steve Wall on his role in the prize-winning short movie Two for the Road. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now Two for the Road is a short film that has been gaining widespread acclaim on the festival circuit and indeed picking up lots of awards and only last week winning Best Cork Short at the Cork International Film Festival and it's also long listed uh, for Best Short at this year's Oscars, well next year's Oscars. It's all about a boy and a father who spend a weekend together travelling uh, Oscar, played by a brilliant young actor who I'd never come across before called Ewan Morris, is a schoolboy in Ireland during what looks like the 90s, given the car edges and the garage. And his parents are separated, but he maintains a bond with his dad, who seems to be spending the weekends with him. This time, they go on a boat for the weekend and they explore some of Ireland. And after they get this boat, they do a bit of camping. And it's a lot of fun and there's football and things like that. Things get a little more negative or unpleasant when the dad, played by Steve Wall, I should say, takes the son to the local pub. It's directed by Lachlan McKenna, and I gather somewhat based, somewhat loosely though, on his own childhood. As I mentioned, Steve Wall plays the dad, and I'm delighted to say that Steve Wall, founding member of The Stunning on the Walls, and of course an accomplished actor at this stage in his own right, with roles in everything from Raised by Wolves, the English, Moon Boy, all sorts of things, joins me now. Steve, how are you? Hi, John. Great great to chat to you. You too. Steve, how did it 
come about? Uh, did did they contact you and say we see you as the dad in this? Or I'm always I'm always curious how you sign up for these things. Yeah, I, it was that's exactly what it was. Um, Lachlan McKenna, the writer director, he got in touch with me. Um, and basically said, you know, would you be interested in doing this? He said, um, yeah, I, I see you as my dad. And uh, <laughs> so I, I I don't know if I was his first port of call or what, you know, I, I don't mind either way. But um, no, I, I, I think maybe I was. He just saw something. He saw me in something. And um, according to him, something clicked. And he just thought I would be right to play his dad, which is, in a way is a kind of a, a, a funny one because... Um, his dad was quite the character. Uh, I think a lot of actually what happened uh, the weekend that the film um, takes place in, um, I think a lot more happened that weekend than what's in the film, you know? Yeah. Uh, so because of the, it's a short film and obviously budget constraints and all, they couldn't do everything. By all accounts, um, uh, the weekends that Lucky spent with his dad <laughs> were very interesting. And I mentioned the young lad, Ewan Morris. I mean, it's a short film, so you you probably don't have lots of time rehearsal and getting together. But it, the two of you are great together in it. I mean, was there just a kind of an, a nice bond when you met or did you spend a bit of time playing pool or, or, or whatever? We did, yeah. Ewan and, and his mum, Marie, drove up from Tralee and they came up to Dublin and uh, we met up with Lockie and... Uh, we spent the whole day together. We went to the pub, we played pool, we had lunch, had a pint. Then we went back to... Um, you and obviously didn't have a pint, just to clarify. He didn't have a pint. Um, so we went back to our uh, studio in Dublin and we kind of ran through scenes and we talked about it and we had the whole day. And yeah. then we were down there as well a day before we we were shooting so we got to hang out a bit that evening as well so it was great and you know there's something very sad about a child kind of having to mind his parent uh, or her parent or whatever but that, that, that there's so that there's a there's a melancholy to this without kind of giving any spoilers did that did that speak to you on a on a human level because that's kind of the heart of the piece he loves his dad but maybe his dad could do a bit better well, when I read the script straight away, it struck a chord with me. Um, it was a, it was a scene, you know, everything went in. It was so familiar, you know, having grown up in Ireland through, in my case, through like the seventies, eighties, nineties, and noughties. I've seen a lot, and uh, you know, I've had the privilege the privilege of growing up um, in Dublin, but also um, uh, all my formative years in the west of Ireland. So I've seen, you know. I've seen city life, I've seen country life, small town life. I've seen it from mm -hmm. all angles. When when I read the script, it was just so familiar. And the 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 character of um, who is actually Lockie's dad was just so familiar to me. I know mm -hmm. loads of guys that are not dissimilar. I think every Irish person of a certain age um, would identify with um, kids uh, in pubs. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, families uh, maybe on holidays down you know the town where they're from or whatever and that scene that kind of scenario when it's kind of late and it's closing time and the parents are still there and still want more drink and kids you know maybe asleep on a bench in the pub or mm. uh, 
in a, in a pram, you know, asleep or crying or just, you know, fed up at that point. You know, there's no one left to play pool with. They've gone through all the songs on the jukebox. They've eaten all the potatoes they can possibly eat at this point. <laughs> and so Irish people uh, really um, identify with a lot of the scenes in the film, you know. Yeah. And do, do I take it from that then, you know, that I'm putting words in your mouth there where I'm saying, you know, the dad could do better. Do you not, I'm not saying he's a villain or anything, but I, it's sounds like you're kind of understanding to who he is. Yeah, I, I, I completely understand. And also there's a huge bond there between mm. the father and son. You know, there's a bond. Yeah. There is love, you know, um, mm-hmm. delicate one, you know, because I mean, it's Lachlan's, I was portraying Lachlan's actual dad, you know. Yeah. And his dad is uh, alive and well and lives down in. So I, I wanted to get it right. And uh, I wanted to get his voice right as well, to a certain extent. You know, his his dad has a slight tinge of a Welsh accent there. Yeah, I was wondering about that because I, I, I thought there was something. All right, so it's Welsh. Yeah, yeah. So his, yeah. his uh, Lockie's dad arrived over from Wales on a motorbike, you know, and he was um, touring around Ireland. So I wanted to try and get his accent. You know, he's very, his, the, the timbre of his voice is very different to mine. Basically just to portray him as the, as, as a warm, a warm, loving father as he was, you know, because he, he wanted to spend every weekend with his son, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they were, you know, um, not exactly um, sort of uh, the, the normal. They weren't visiting art <laughs> exhibitions every week. Right? The theatre, or um, I'll take you, I've got two tickets for the cinema, you know, and they would, they would all, all of an end up playing pub pool, you know what I mean, for hours mm. all sorts of adventures anyway. There was a kind of an innocence about him as well. Mm. You know, and and he very much kind of treats his son like his, um, in a way, sort of like his drinking buddy, you know. Mm. You know yeah. His son is drinking um, cola, and he his his dad always talked about adventures. You know where, what adventure will we have this weekend? Uh, after the, the 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 premiere screening in the Galway Film Festival, the reaction afterwards when everybody uh, spilled out of the cinema onto the the courtyard there, in front of the town hall theatre, it was like so many people were very emotional, which is something I hadn't expected. You know, I I kind of thought um, people were going to sort of. Um, um, basically kind of point the finger at me as being the, you know, the father character, you know, and kind of say, oh, that character was so, you know, irresponsible and all this. But they were, people were really kind of bonded with the two characters, with the mm. um, father and son, and found it a very emotional film. I don't, and Lachlan said the same thing. I don't think we were quite expecting that strong emotional reaction to it. Isn't that interesting? Well, listen, it's it's very sweet. It's it's very melancholy in places as well. I should tell people that there is a wonderful website you can find on YouTube called Omleto that has a lot of short movies and Two for the Road will be on there this weekend. You can see it. If you also go to www.twofortheroadfilm.com, you can find all about upcoming screenings because it is sweeping the boards at, at, at film festivals here and elsewhere so it may have long left to run and I'm not even going to ask you about Oscars and stuff like that Steve because uh, that tends to damn stuff <laughs> and yeah. we all end uh, we, we won't get into that but it is going to go far and wide I think let me ask you briefly Steve uh, in terms of your acting and I mentioned your many credits there and continuing credits in terms of you and Joe with the stunning and the walls and stuff I was thinking you know is it like Garfunkel 
going off to film Catch-22 and he had to go and tell Paul Simon I'm off for three months or whatever. Like, how do you manage the two of them? It is tricky, I have to say. I nearly lost that raised by the Ridley Scott thing raised by wolves that time because I had, um, we had one show in Limerick. I remember, I think the date was the 5th of May or something. And we were playing the milk market in Limerick. And then when the dates came in for raised by wolves, cause I had to go to South Africa for that. They wanted to fly me out on like the 4th of May. It was like the day before. And like with, with these big TV series and stuff like this, there's so many people involved, the schedule. Mm-hmm a nightmare they have to have so many ducks in a row for something to work so if some actor in a supporting role <laughs> comes back and said oh yeah back and i just said you know um i've got a gig that night in limerick and it sold out and they were like oh god i don't believe you um it was like and the, the question was is it a deal breaker meaning can you cancel the gig and i came back and i just said i can't you know, it's like sold yeah. out. It's been on sale for months. There's a contract signed and all that. So I was actually almost lost that Raised by Wolf show. And um, they came back, somebody, some savior um, in some department came back and said, look, we'll have this set finished. We can finish this set before and then we can squeeze this other scene. And it was basically somebody jigged things around and right. it happened. But it is the one thing that I do kind of, I am worried about because gigs get booked much further in, in advance and film and television stuff, it's it's actually booked quite late in the day. It's really surprising. Mm-hmm. You know, there might be some project and they're waiting for for it to be fully financed. And it's like next minute, all the finances are, are in. They press the button and it's like, go. You know, yeah. they may have secured their main stars, you know, their A-listers for like the lead mm-hmm. roles. But then all the rest of the cast, very often, sometimes you just, you could hear about it like two, three weeks in advance or even less. You know. And you're just like, kind of expected to roll with it. Yeah. And you just have to go. And like, I got a call, just to give you an example, This it was... Um, Last year, last October, I got a call at 11 a.m. asking, could I fly to Budapest that night? And I said, okay, what's it for? And I said, <laughs> well, it's for Dune, Dune 2. Wow. <laughs> like, you know, it was a small little part, <laughs> but okay. So I basically had to make calls. I had to cancel everything for that week because they wanted me there for, I think it was five days. I landed in Budapest and the next day i am um, been brought onto this humongous set and I'm introduced to Donny Villeneuve. So nice and so delighted that I came at short notice and all of this. He was very nice. And then he says, um, and come over here and I'll introduce you to the cast, you know, that are, you know, you're doing the scene with. And it was um, Christopher Walken, Charlotte Rampling, Florence Pugh, Austin Butler, Stellan Skarsgård, Dave Bautista. And then we're all there and they went, hi, Steve. <laughs> so that was at a day's notice. I, it was probably the most bizarre thing I'd, I'd, I'd ever done. So I had, I mean, there's the other, other things went on there in which I'll, well, I'll tell another time, maybe after for, the for, for another time, for another time when Doom comes out. In the meantime, the, the Stunning are playing this Saturday night after this show uh, in the Olympia Theatre. That's the 25th of November. They're also playing in the Royal Theatre uh, Event Centre in Castle Bar on December 15th. And December 16th, they're in the INEC. I have been talking to Steve Wall about his role in the lovely short Irish movie Two for the Road. Steve, lovely to chat to you. 
And you too, John. Thanks, William. Steve Wall there talking to me about the jobbing life of an actor and indeed a musician and the vagaries therein. But largely he was talking to me about his role in the great short movie Two for the Road. And as I say, you can see it this weekend on Omletto on YouTube, but you can find out more about its screenings on twofortheroadfilm.com and you'll find all the information there. And as I say, I think you are going to see a lot more of that movie, that short movie. It's only about 16, 18 minutes long in the weeks and hopefully months ahead. That is it for this week. Next week, my friends, as things stand, I'm going to be talking to Julia Roberts about her new movie, Leave the World Behind, as well as its director, Sam Esmail. So that's the plan, folks. I'm getting on a plane to London next Wednesday. So all going to plan, I shall report back to you with Julia Roberts next week. And if you can't get enough of me for this one hour each week and you need more, next Tuesday I will be hosting the Moncrief Show filling in for Sean. So that's from two to four. If you're around stick on the radio. Thanks to Anne-Marie Kane who helped out on the show this week. Just remind you this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Enjoy the remainder of your weekend. Have a safe week ahead and I'll talk to you all next week.